Hey everybody, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 163, March 2023. Our guest this month is Patrick Gaybridge. Patrick is many, many things. He is a playwright, he is a producer, a novelist, and I came to know of him through the Playwright Marketing Bidge, an online supportive community for playwrights with a focus on the marketing and business side of playwriting, which helps all of us creative types figure out how we're going to manage all the things we've spent so much time creating and putting together. Loose affiliation of how many members would you say? I think we're, we're just touching 1300 right now. Okay. Yeah, so it's playwrights from around the world. You know, we uh, focus on marketing and it's been going now a little more than 20 years. That's incredible. Amazing to me. Yeah. And it, and it's interesting. It started out as this, I, I had an idea that I wanted to make marketing a little more fun uh, and build accountability. And I had already done, back in the 90s, I published a monthly newsletter called Market Insight for Playwrights. Mm-hmm. And so that was designed to give people better information. So you used to get your playwright marketing information from two books. So the Dramatist Source right. Playwrights Companion. This is a long oh, yeah. time ago. Uh, I, I remember those, yes. Yeah. Back in the days so, when you sent paper copies out. Exactly. Uh-huh. And But the information you would get, you know, at that book would be out of date by six months in. What time so I thought, well, let's make it so that we're sending out better stuff. So every month I would compile you know, 16 pages of submission opportunities, contest opportunities, and things like that. And then we ended up selling that to, that that went out monthly to a couple hundred playwrights. Um, but then I ended up selling that um, to someone. It continued for a long time, but I was busy with having babies and stuff. So I think I got sold that around. Yeah, babies will do uh, that to you. They take yeah, up around lot 2000. Of time. Oh my gosh. Yeah, right, so you, you, you were mailing this stuff out to people. Is that yeah, yeah. This 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 mailed out. So yeah, it was a it was a paper publication again because you think about when it is. This is ninety three to yeah. When I was busy. like with stamps and everything, right? Yeah, and I would send out a hundred queries every month to theaters all around the country with a form for them to fill out and get back to me by paper, and I would compile them and print it out and do all that stuff. I had a bulk mailing permit, the whole works. It was a little small business. It didn't really make much money, but it covered its costs. It was a good, I, I think it's a good thing for playwrights to think about. And that's always like, like, what is the tool you need and can you build it? You know, so like that was a thing I needed and I could build it myself. And it gave me the information. It also gave me an inside scoop on the information and made me kind of an expert in marketing for playwrights and that's what i needed i needed to get because i lived in the hinterlands of colorado so i needed uh, a lot more information i couldn't just rely on networks that i i lived in new york for a little while but i didn't know anybody i was really young mm-hmm. so this was a way for me to do that then later uh we started the binge um in so when did we start that <laughs> in 2003 i think okay and and so that was an idea for a different way of looking at, at marketing. And that was, you know, how can we build some, uh, you know, make it fun. And so it was just an email list of a couple of playwrights at first. And I said, let's set up the challenge of 
you know, sending out a play a day for 30 days and we'll all check in with each other and just build a sense of accountability. I think I heard about like a a town that had all lost weight. Uh, So they kind of took it on as a game, you know, and it it worked. It was just a way of building community within the town. It wasn't just that they lost weight. It's that they had fun and they got to know each other. I mean, no, like, the, the Internet in 03 is considerably different than the Internet we have now. Exactly right. So this was all email based. Right. So it was um, just emails back and forth. And it was that way for a few years until we kind of figured out like, oh, we could go to a mail group like Yahoo, uh, a Yahoo group. And that lasted for quite a while until right. it, it kind of didn't work anymore. Organizational yeah, so changes took place in Yahoo. Yes. Yes. But, what was good about it was it was really cheap. So it's free to join, which is great. It was pretty easy. Um, but what's interesting is what emerged out of it was a really supportive community, a really supportive online community, which yeah. can sometimes feel a little rare um, and a really generous community. So that people started sharing where they were submitting things to. And now it's kind of a place where a lot of people just kind of park and, 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 and suck up opportunities um which is fine i i don't begrudge anyone that there's kind of an active community of a few dozen at any given time absolutely that's varied over the last 20 years but it's this really great tool that i think one thing i'm really interested in as a as a writer and creator is just kind of building peer-to-peer networks Mm -hmm. um it's 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 one thing for because playwriting is a lonely business it really is we we basically sit there in, in small, dark, dank rooms, typing away, hoping to, you know, make something that will hit a stage somewhere. And networking was never easy, you know, before, A, before the binge, okay? And um, really before the internet, because we were pretty much, there were conferences, yes. And everything was pretty much analog at that point, but getting in touch with others and networking has always been the key to success in just about any profession you want to you know look into because people can help you out you can help other people out and the thing about playwright binge for me that i've noticed more than anything else is the fact that people will kick in opportunities they will tell other people about opportunities and they will help people out with advice you know i've got a question about formatting so you're going to get a dozen responses mm-hmm. um and the people are so generous and outgoing. It's, aside from being an informational place to be, it's a place where the playwright artist can find kinship and belong. Mm-hmm. And that goes an awful long way to boosting one's confidence in one's own craft and that sort of thing. So it's, it's really a lovely place to be. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you find it that way. I do too. And and it's a funny thing in that it evolved to what it is. I mean, it always started out with a generous sense, but I think you know, if you try to make it in if you tried to just say, I'm gonna construct this thing, I don't think it would have happened quite the right way. It's a kind of thing where you have to give it time to grow. Communities are built of people interacting, and you have to be patient that that has time. Um, and it's like writing a play; you got to let it develop organically. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, I think that that has been an interesting lesson for me about how you build networks like that. And a lot of it is not have 
interesting because there was kind of a competitive network set up around it. I think, I don't know if you remember, like, uh, there was an alternate version of this, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago that was kind of tried to put into place. I want to say Gary Garrison had a newsletter that then turned into something else. And then right. it was kind of complicated, but it was around marketing too. And someone tried to set up basically another version of this community, but it had a lot of rules. Um, and so it was trying to make this thing that's a little amorphous, a little more structured. Yeah. And it failed. Um, and that's the kind of the odd secret about this thing is that there isn't like this huge, long, like form you have to fill out and a code mm -hmm. of conduct and all this stuff. And some people are like, oh, you should have one. I'm like, kind of but that's actually not what allowed this to happen well your code you of conduct is more or less be respectful to everybody that you're interacting with right but for the and most then, part everybody does for the most part that's true and, and then yeah. every once in a while you know we have an issue we have a mm -hmm. we had a blow up this summer and you know i do my best to yeah. handle it and other community members chip in and and you know i think we've it's community managed right um, and that's kind of an interesting thing. How much of this, how much of your lifetime does running this Playwright Binge take up? Uh, surprisingly little, okay. which is also what is why it's lasted so long, why I've been able to do it so long. And it doesn't take, yeah. it doesn't cost a lot of money. Everyone, it didn't used to cost us anything. And then now there's a subscription fee, but everybody chipped in like right away, much more right. than we needed. We were covered for like five years in a, in a day. Um, which was great. Yeah. Uh, you know, I read everything that comes across the 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 list, and I, it's really easy to get people to sign up. So I manage a few problems here and there. It's when communal problems break out, that's when it takes up a lot of time and energy. Yes. Um, and then the binge is kind of the the two times a year. So for people who don't know what it is, in March and September, we send out a play a day every day for 30 days, and you report back to the group. And we'll see anywhere from in those months, 800 to 1,500 emails come across sure. the group in a short period of time. That's kind of, it takes up some time, but not as much as you'd think. It's, those are two busy months. I was going to get to that um, because I have heard back from, let me preface it. It's it's one of the two months I pay extra extra attention to because of the of the opportunities. And right. yes, I'm your typical playwright. I want to send out as many plays as possible so I can get produced and share what I've got and can you know, contribute to the group. But a lot of plays go out in February and September. But March and yeah. September, right? March and September. March yeah. and September, because does the month we're 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 in right now. Uh and I've heard back from a couple of um different theaters and saying all of a sudden we've gotten an awful lot of of, of submissions here do is there something going on and i've had to introduce them to the group uh, but it's an yeah, odd it's, yeah it's an odd thing in that it's as many people are as involved with as are and the surge of marketing activity that puts out is actually quite large and mm -hmm. it still operates under the radar like it i had to introduce it to uh Tina Fallon at the Dramatist Guild a few years ago. And like they no one in that office had ever even heard of it before. Um yeah. and I would say in general, large theaters, it's like, oh, what's this thing? I don't know. And, and a lot of well-established playwrights have never heard of it. But there's a lot of mid-level and beginner playwrights who have. And yeah, yeah like yeah. you said, 
theaters, if they accidentally get mentioned and they didn't know it was coming, all of a sudden, boom, uh-huh. they could have 100 scripts the next day. Exactly. And that's that's tough to wade through because you know, it's they these theaters get enough scripts as it is. They put out a call, boom, inbox is filled. Right. But once the binge cakes in <laughs> and the inbox has a waiting line. Uh, yeah, it's a kind of weird thing in that there is a concern that sometimes we're too successful and are we, do we break theaters uh, submission processes? Um, you know, it, you know, I'm, I'm, it's unclear because I would say most of the calls that go out there, they're put, they're put into the public domain. So it's not like, you know, we, we hacked somebody's system to, no. to set up a submission, but it's just, they weren't ready for the exposure and you have to be careful not to accidentally expose somebody that's not ready. I, I would say right. as a theater. A couple of the places I've heard from the larger places generally tend to get more. The smaller mm-hmm. theaters, because of what they are able to give the playwright once the, you know, the, the, the play is selected, don't get as many. Most mm-hmm. I think most people tend to shoot for the bigger theaters that you know right. will will give you a flight out, will give you a you know, place to stay, will buy you breakfast or something, whatever it happens to be. And I think there's probably about four of them left. Um, <laughs> but most of the smaller theaters noticed an uptick. It wasn't wasn't none of the none of the places that I've heard from um, said it was a huge uptick. It was just we're, we're getting we're, we're getting more more than normal. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's a busy month for a lot of playwrights, but it's a it's an amazing thing that has taken so much time to come together, and like we said before, has developed organically into a very supportive organization where people actually look out for each other. Yeah, it's nice. It's hard to find that online, and and I think the process of if you participate in one of the two binges, I think what partly what's designed to do is to build build a habit, right? So if you're doing, if you really buy into it and you're like, I'm going to do this every day, at, you know, I get up early at 7 a.m., I'm going to send out a script for 30 days, like you've changed something about yourself and about your marketing hab- process. Um, and and that can have a really powerful impact. Yeah, because I mean, marketing is is key to this business. I mean, most of us are artists. We're playwrights. We're artists. We, we, make, we make art. Um, but we're not taught how to market that. We're not taught how to take what we've created and turn it into a product. And here I'm making air quotes and, but it is a product. How do we get the, and you've mentioned marketing more than a few times. What's your background in marketing? Um, Nothing, not specific. You know, I think I grew up in a dad, my father had a small business, so kind of paid attention to how, how to get the word out there. And so I'm, I'm in, and I've, had small businesses so i'm engaged in that right. um but yeah you're right you, you know you can keep your your play in your drawer your hypothetical drawer but no one's right. gonna you know break down the door and come you know no one has called me yet and said you know i broke into your office and i found the script <laughs> on your desk and we want to do it or that we hacked your computer and we yeah. found this thing it just really doesn't work that way oddly enough which could constantly surprises me open. Oh my god! Because my computer is full of brilliant, you know, Pulitzer Prize-winning works. Um, right. Yeah. So okay. Um, aside from playwright binge and the binge, which is 
are both amazing. A lot of your work is historical. You've done place in place, site-specific, I'm going to say bespoke works, where people contact you to create something specific for them, for that particular location. Do I have that right? That's correct. Yep. So our company uh, creates site-specific plays, always in partnership with another entity. So mm-hmm. in partnership with a museum or historic site or another organization. So our company is very, very tiny, um, but we have some experience both creating new plays and producing them. So and these are so there's a whole lot of good reasons why we're partnering outside of the theater world. Um, one is that we want to do it in these sites that are amazing and right that specifically for them. So yeah, right. we you know we might be reaching out to a museum or often they'll reach out to us and say, or we'll have a relationship. We'll be talking and they'll be like, yeah, we want you to do something for us. And then we'll figure out, you know, what's the site, what's the story, who are the people, and then make something and produce it at their spot. Um, so when you say this company, who's in it with you? Uh, there's me and I have two co-producers, uh, Jasmine Bonner and Jess Meyer, and they're uh, they're helping shoulder the load right these days, which is great. Uh, but it's it's tiny, so we're very much a project based company. So we don't have. I wanted to run a theater company that didn't have a space and didn't have to raise money. I haven't quite succeeded in the raise money part entirely. Yeah, good luck with that one. That's the tough part. But. But the thing is that, you know, we tell the organization typically, like, this is what it's going to cost. And when you have the money, we can do it. And we do it in phases. So, like, we'll come to somebody and say, okay, you know, phase one is we're going to figure out what the plays are going to be and do some basic research. If it's multiple writers, like, say it's like three one acts. Like, we're doing a project right now uh, in my town of Northampton with the Historic Society at their site. And so we're going to do three one act plays by three different writers that we will commission um, about over three different centuries on their site. They have the restored barn that they're going to use. We'll use a barn and then out in their, their yard, they have a kind of a cool spot that we can do it in. And so phase one is me figure out who those writers are going to be, having them do some research. We present to the board. We say, this is what the plays are going to be about, get buy-in from them. And so that, that's a certain amount of money, but it's not a huge amount of money. And then phase two is we're commissioning the writers. And then phase two, we usually have like two in-house readings as that phase. And then then they'll do phase three of rehearsing and producing the play. So it's it's what's good about that for the institution is that they don't have to come up with a huge amount of money all at once. They can kind of, we can phase it in and it's a lot easier to raise the money for phase two. If you have phase one done, same thing for phase three. Sure. And yeah. so- and these are professional productions. They, they may or may not be equity. It just depends on the size of the organization and the the type of show it is. Like, it's hard to do. Like, we had a show that ran seven days a week, three times a day for wow. eight weeks. That was a, a one-act play that took place in a museum. It was written around an historic door from the John Hancock Mansion. And um, so they had said, we want it to be part of this exhibit that's about unheard voices in American history. We have this door that's been sitting in storage for a hundred years. It's going to be the centerpiece piece of this exhibit. We want you to write a play about this door. And I said, well, I can't write a play about a door, but I can write a play about people. All plays are about people. And so figured out two people who are in that household, Cato Hancock, who was enslaved in that household, and Dolly Hancock, who was married to John Hancock. And so they they lived in this household together for some 40 years. Um, and so it's kind of about them, but also 
the era of history kind of that was happening, the revolution that was happening all around them and talking about enslavement and roles of women and family and things like that, all in kind of like a 25 minute little two-hander. Um, yeah. That was fun. But we we did it for two summers, like 270 performances, some 7,000 people. That's it incredible. Was, it was pretty yeah. cool. It was a good yeah. producing challenge too. Um, but that's the kind of, th- that's, that's one kind of thing we might do. Sometimes there are standalone things like Blood on the Snow uh, was a play that we did about a meeting that took place on the day after the Boston Massacre. And this is actually, I got started mixing history and site-specific plays together. Right. This one is really important to me because it was, it was a turnaround moment in my college education. I was a, I was a history major and Mm. it was one of the, one of the things I encountered at the particular time that made me realize that a lot of the stuff that I had read in the textbooks wasn't exactly really what happened. And we were given, which was a, a new phenomenon to me, primary information, source information, primary sources. And what I read and what I discovered was something completely different than the, you know, two tablet a day kind of history stuff that they they threw down your throat. You know, the Boston Massacre and Christmas Addicts and <laughs> all that. So, okay, please wh- tell me about the play. What did you discover that nobody else that, that you brought to your audiences? That was pretty, that was pretty fun. And that was a really great deep dive into research. And I'd done a bunch of historical projects before, but not paired it up with site specific. And so they had come to me, they had just refurbished the room where this meeting took place at the old state house. Mm -hmm. And it felt like a stage set to them. So Nat Shidley, who was a public historian at the time, came to me and said, uh, he found me through connections and said, you know, we're looking someone to write a play for this room. And so we met and I'm like, yeah, that'd be amazing. Um, because the massacre took place like right outside of one floor below. And it was just, it was an incredible room and I could just see exactly how it would play out. Um, So yeah, so I worked with him researching. What did we find out about that play? It was really interesting how, I think you're right, in how confusing things can be when you start getting into a lot of primary sources. And this is a perfect example actually, in that there's a lot of eyewitness accounts uh, the Boston Massacre, and they don't line up. And so you can they go- almost never do. I mean, you can get eyewitness yeah. accounts for almost anything from 12 people who've been there from different perspectives, and they're not going to jive. Yes, I think that's very true. And I think in this particular case, it becomes pretty clear when you look through the research that it was a very complicated night. Yeah. Um, how dark, like it was dark, and the streets are covered in ice and snow, and the town is just a powder keg waiting to explode. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this young soldier does something really stupid, probably. And then, you know, the well, soldiers... They were out. under threat, weren't they? The British soldiers that were occupying were under threat from the crowd. Yes, they were being pelted with ice and horse dung, frozen horse yeah. dung and bricks. And then people were beating on them with sticks. And, um, you know, and then... Somebody fired, it was a chain reaction, and it went off. So, you know, it was almost certainly, certainly um, the captain, now I'm facing his name, of course, uh, did not give the order to fire. Um, People, and people were shouting, fire, fire, fire. Oh, and the the crazy thing is that um, this was a, this is a big 
uh, theme of the play is that um, the 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 action that happened is is prearranged. So the fire bells are ringing. There's no fire. The fire bells are ringing as a sound as a sign for people to come out. And so half the town is out there with buckets, and the other half is there with sticks and clubs looking for a fight. And mm. so the the crowd has been raised to make this thing happen. And um, there's no so, way to dial this thing down, though. There wasn't, and that's so. Thomas Hutchinson, who's kind of a key figure in this play, is trying to figure out like who rang the bells, like who is ringing the bells, and he thinks it was Sam Adams or John Hancock or someone working for them yeah. arranged for the bells to be rung. Um, and I think it's a it's actually a question that remains unanswered, like who rings the bells, but why are there people out there? Why are they looking for a fight? Um, so it was, and you know, it's used as propaganda. And what's interesting about the moment. And and this is something we could talk about that when we did the play or something we we would talk about more in the discussion, is that this is a moment where the American Revolution almost didn't happen. And the reason why is that if they had failed in that room to come to a peaceful solution, mm-hmm. uh, and this lieutenant, this governor, acting governor Hutchinson, who is reviled by the Americans later and even at the moment does yeah. come to a compromise because the the patriot side's demanding he remove troops from boston and he's like well i would but they're not my troops they're the crown's troops they're not really under my control and they're like yeah well you volunteered to move some so if you can move some you can move them all and um and he realizes that if if he doesn't order them out the streets are going to run with blood that night yeah. if they had the this is this is my historical conjecture. Sure. If they had, um, the colonies were not yet ready to present a unified front against the British. If if there had been a horrible massacre, hundreds of people dead, the British would have sent more troops in, um, leveled or severely destroyed Boston, yeah. and then I I think you could say that would have put the fear of God into the rest of the colonies and. The war couldn't happen five years later in Boston, um, right? Because of how, be but having, it's, yeah, we'd still be having fish and chips for breakfast. Exactly. So it's yeah. it's weird to find moments in history where you're like the crisis averted because um, we'll yeah. never know, right? Exactly. But it, it seemed like pretty strong thing. So it's really powerful, and it was a kind of thing where we did this show in this room. It's downtown Boston, and you know the museum had. had some lectures and you know talks and things like that and always been kind of lukewarm attended you know the same 20 people go to these things all the time so we were it was a big gamble on their part it took us a while to raise the money the national park service kicked in a big chunk of it mm-hmm. as a partner um and then we put the production together it was a great great team of professional actors it was a terrific show and you felt like you're kind of fly on the wall right there. It happened, right. You're sitting right in their laps. It's 50 people in a pretty small room. The photos um, on your sold... website look great, by the way. So, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah we great, great press photos. Uh, and we sold out before we even opened. Now, I'd never had that happen before. Wow. We added a week, it sold out. We came back the next year for 12 weeks and sold that out. Um, so that was kind of a sign like, oh, this is something people really want to see. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How long did it take you to do the research on this? Um, I think from start to end, it was a few months to do the research and then um, come up with a, a first draft. It runs about an hour long. And 
you know, so probably working on the script pretty severely for off and on for a year, continuing to bring stuff. Uh, it was it was great. And, yeah. you know, the processes depend a lot on how complicated there are plays that have taken much longer than that. Oh, sure. Well, everything is different. Plus, a yeah. period piece like this, you've got to have costumes. You've got to have special. This isn't a black box production. No, no. Costumes do a lot of the weight for us design-wise for the shows that we do. We try not to add... We never add sets. Um, we try not to add lights. Uh, we do use sound design to our advantage. There's a great moment in this production where the the crowd, the mob, the people are moving from Faneuil Hall to Old South Meeting House, and they have to go right by this building. And so I figured out when thinking about that, how loud that would have been in this room right. and how panicked the people inside would have been. So we had a sound, we had a great sound designer who was able to make you feel while you're sitting there like, oh, there's 2,000 people walking by outside and they might come inside and kill us all. Um, and that was pretty fun. Yeah, I'll bet. I, I love doing sound design myself. I think it's so much fun. <laughs> it's amazing the things that you can do with it. And, yeah. and that's unobtrusive in the kind of sites that we're at. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, Feel like that's one of our stronger tools it's it's yeah it really is good for setting atmosphere and putting place um yeah, yeah. continuing on the on the on the history binge that we're on right now you see what i did there binge yeah yeah okay. that's nice uh yeah thanks uh <laughs> um steering to freedom your book about robert smalls and i have seen and i have read not extensively but this gentleman has had an unbelievable history for who he was, the time he was in. And the more I read about him, the more I keep thinking, why wasn't he killed at this point? Why wasn't he gotten rid of at that point? How did he manage to get to where he, he got to? It was, it's one of the most incredible life journeys I've ever heard. Can you tell us who he was and what happened to him? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I definitely encourage people to read the novel because I think it's it's pretty close to the history. It yeah. is really just kind of going the way I approach historical stuff. And that's just kind of trying to flesh in the story that I found. Now, this is a novel um, you've written, not a play. Just right. This is a novel. Pointing yeah. that out for yeah for for the audience. Okay. It was it was for a little while was could have been a movie, but uh, you know Hollywood came to visit for just a short period of time, which was mm. nice, but uh, mm. not not all the way. I, I there is there's always rumors of a Robert Small's movie in the works. Um, I hope it happens because it's such an amazing story. Uh, so, yeah, so he was a a young man, a young father of two, a black man enslaved in um, in South Carolina. He worked in Charleston. He had been born in Beaufort. Um, possibly his father might have been the man who owned his mother. Um, seems a likely possibility. Not so he was he was not unusual. Um, he was a very skilled sailor and pilot. So he was a, even at a young age, he really understood the waterways, uh, the tricky harbor in Charleston and that whole surrounding area. So he was a ship's pilot. Uh, so he was someone, there was a system, system of slavery in Charleston proper was a little odd and, or, uh, it's just, you know, it's the way it worked that right. people people would hire out their slaves for tasks. So essentially they would rent them to somebody. And so you could hire yourself out if you were enslaved for like $5 a month to be a ship's pilot. And then you have to pay your master $4 a month and you get to keep a dollar. Um, so he was a ship's pilot guiding people in and out. And then during the war, 
he was uh, working on a paid detail, you know, hired out mm-hmm. for the um, Confederate Navy in that area. So he was involved in planting torpedoes and obstructions and things like that. So he knew the ins and outs of every where all the bad things were that were going to happen to you. He knew where all the forts were, right. where all the guns were. And um, and he was paid he, by, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Who hired him for this? This would have been the Confederate Navy. Okay. Hired him so, to do this. So he was working for the Confederates. Gotcha. Yeah, he's working for the Confederates. And so on a particular ship, the planter mm-hmm. uh, that had a white captain, Captain Relia. Um, and so... Uh, he'd been doing this for a year or so. This is in 1862, so the, the war has been going just about a year. And rumor has come to them that uh, supposedly if, if you're a, a Black escapee that can cross the lines, you'll be given freedom. Um, so that was an extra incentive to figure out, like, oh, maybe there's a way I could make this happen. And um, so he comes up with a plan. And his plan is rather audacious. He decides he's going to escape to freedom. And not just with himself, he's going to do with the whole crew uh, crew of the steamship. The planter is a pretty uh, good-sized uh, double-hull, double-wheeled paddle boat, okay. uh, wood-fired steamboat. Um, it's, I want to say, 100, 150 feet long, can hold a couple thousand bales of cotton when fully loaded. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, it was some consent. It was the flagship of uh, the general in town. So uh, it was one of the better ships right. around in, in, in Charleston Harbor in the Confederate Navy. So he decides he's going to take that ship um, and all of the crew. And just to make things a little more difficult, he says, we're also going to take our family with us. Cause he doesn't want to leave his wife and children behind in slavery. Right. So they come up with a plan when the officers go ashore sometime, they're going to be ready, and it happens. So they leave the ship under his control. He's kind of been a crew chief, and um, there's a big ball at and the former trusted. governor's mansion. Yeah, And so they're like, well, I don't want to stay on the ship all night. I don't want to stay on the ship all night. Robert, you watch the ship. And they're like, he's like, okay, if I have to. And then so... <laughs> He had a plan uh, so that when that eventuality happened, he was ready, and, and and they were ready. And so he got all the crew on board. It's it's incredibly difficult to not have anyone on your crew betray you. There's lots of advantages for them doing that. Sure, yeah. um, and then to make the level of difficulty higher, like I said, he decided to get his wife and children and the wives and children of the other crew members on board. And it was, there was Everybody knew about this and anybody could have pulled the plug at any particular time. Right. Anybody could have turned him in. And so what they do is they decide when they go to this ball, they're going to go out and he's about the same height and build as the captain he was working for. So they break into the, um, his cabin and he puts on the captain's uniform, but it's dark. So they can't be the, the soldiers at all the forts, they have to go through, We'll just see, you know, his sure. uniform and his signature hat waving at them as long as it's dark. So they have a they have a clock ticking and they and they 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 take the ship around one or two o'clock in the morning and they manage to have their wives and children upstream a little bit. So they don't even go in the direction they want to go and they have to go upstream, pick up their families and then go back the other way past five heavily armed forts, Oof. including Fort Sumter get the pass to go. But luckily, they knew all the signals. So our yeah. ships operated at night all the time. We lose track of that. We think, oh, they didn't have electricity, all this stuff. But no, that was a war. People, it's 24 hours a day. Right. So 
So they're just acting. They're not running out. They're walking out. They're walking out with a plan. And so they know all the signals and they're just acting like they know where they're going yeah. until they get to Fort Sumter. They're waiting. They give the signal to go and it, they're a little worried. The sun's starting to come up. And then it's like, uh, finally, they get signal past the planter and they take off. And as they're on their way out, we're, the party is broken up back back in town. Someone goes down to the slip and the boat is gone. And so the word goes up. There's cannon fire. There's gunshots. And they managed to get out just in time to safety and, and also managed to get to the Union lines without getting sunk by the Union blockade, right. which is no small feat. Because it's a Confederate ship. It's a Confederate ship, right? And they didn't, they don't have a way to signal. <laughs> the white flag. They finally use a baby blanket from his baby to yeah. kind of wave the white flag and surrender. And and then they're in kind of a perilous position because they're they have no legal status. They're contra they're called contrabands. They're essentially yeah. escaped objects in in the eyes of the law. Um, yeah. So and that's just kind of like the first third of the. I look at just his warriors. He's an amazing guy, but he managed. He's a just incredibly smart um gifted person who understands people and what makes them tick and um and also a brilliant sailor a brilliant navigator and this so is, he already this is, he's one of the most incredible people you yeah could, you could read why hasn't there been a movie made about this because this is the ultimate escape adventure i mean oh yeah why is spike lee asleep at the wheel on this one? Come on. <laughs> there is i i i, I want to say um there's I can't remember who was last at it. I think the guy, I can't remember. There's always, like I said, there's always rumors about somebody making a movie about it. I wish they would. I wish yeah. they adapted my novel into it, but I don't care. I just want to do the story. Uh, so maybe you'll see one soon. But he's, because he continues, like he he continues through the war. He plays a really major effort uh, in that area throughout. But he like, he goes to Washington because he's, at the time, he becomes very famous like the, the abolitionist sees upon this and he's he is all over the papers. There's a huge price on his head because the Confederates are embarrassed that he's stolen that this black man has stolen their ship. He is used as an example by the abolitionist saying, you know, black people are not just people, they're brave enough to fight. And yeah. that there's this big argument whether it's worth raising black troops or not. And he is kind of the linchpin. And, and he actually meets with Secretary of War Stanton, and I think maybe with Lincoln. We I, I mm -hmm. like I have envisioned to have seen the novel where they meet these two riverboat pilots uh one to one. But it's interesting. So he is involved in helping raise black troops in Washington. He goes to New York. He meets important people there. Then he goes back to um South Carolina, is involved in the war. So he's working and he ends up working on the planter again and is involved in a really big uh rescue mission um near where if you know the movie Glory where Battery yes, Wagner is not sure, yeah. that island he is involved in a in a very big rescue mission that succeeds and he's promoted on the spot is the first black captain um to serve on a US ship uh there's debate over where he sits but yeah right. his his war adventures are incredible um uh, but then he goes on to become a congressman during reconstruction so i mean he he continues like he's a guy who had political power even past reconstruction um so he kind of sees the whole arc of freedom and then the retraction of freedom. The, my book just looks at his warriors, but there's a whole nother novel to be written um, for his life after, probably two. 
Well, your book should be read and read widely. And this okay. man's this man's life story should be taught in schools because it's a crime to not inform people that folks like him existed. Yes. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's one of my favorite people. I'd love to meet him. I think he'd be quite the storyteller. Yeah, the first time I read about him, I had to read the the story twice, thinking somebody's making this up. They're making this out of whole yeah. cloth, and but no, this is this is an actual thing, and it was yeah, just he absolutely has, stunning. He has descendants who uh, are still around uh, in South Carolina and the Bef in uh, Charleston and Beaufort area. There's talk about a museum and stuff like that. I I don't know what the status is on it lately. I met one or two, but if I was doing it again, I would have talked to them in much more detail. Um, right. I talked to them a little bit after. There's one more thing I want to talk to talk to you about, and it's something that you and I have in common, um, and it's called titling our plays the same thing. We both have <laughs> we both have a play called Quack, and I had written mine as a joke. It was purely a lark uh, uh, because a fellow I knew online, because I'm, I'm part of a couple of different online reading groups. Uh, had a bit part in somebody else's play where basically his only line was quack. <laughs> and we had a ball with that one. And somehow the joke got exploded. And I wrote another play where there's a character in it who only has one, well, the only line he has, which he repeats several times, is quack. Uh, and then I'm doing research on you and I say, you've got a play called, I'm going to say this again, quack. Um, so Tell me a little bit about this play that we both <laughs> kind of plagiarized titles from. I think I plagiarized yours, but you know, we'll let the lawyers <laughs> let, let the lawyers work this out. Yeah, they'll have to figure that out. Mine's actually a very simple and sweet and sad little ten minute play. I had come across. I think I was. I don't know. I was in a mode writing stuff, and um, there's a phenomenon where young ducks become imprinted on people, and I think I'd read a story Ooh. about a guy in college who had an imprinted duck follow him to class and everything like that. So I wrote the story from the point of view of the duck um, growing up to worship and idolize this boy. Um, yeah. And then, you know, in the end, you know, he has seen her as his best friend for a while, but then gets a little peer pressure about, you know, you maybe shouldn't be bringing her to your grad school classes and stuff like that. So he kind of has to inform her that she's a duck. Um, and she didn't really realize that. And then he starts laying out like, well, well, this is what ducks do. And, you know, ducks don't wear slippers and they don't wear my sweater and they don't talk. They just quack. And so it's, it's about relationships. I think I had a, my daughter was probably a, a teenager at that time. So I'm watching, you know, young women, go through relationships and think about how men treat or shape them. And so, but it crams a lot into a little piece. It's a really interesting play structurally, even in 10 minutes. Um, cool. Would love to see it one of these days. We should get yeah. together and just do plays called Quack. Which, I would totally be up for that. I'd be, <laughs> I'll be in touch. I'll let you know. Yeah. Patrick Gabridge, this has been so much fun talking with you. This is a, I love your writing. I love what you've done, especially with the historical works. I love the binge. Uh, it's been a gift and a godsend, not just for me, but for, oh, 1,300 other people who've benefited from this. And we found a community because of you. So for all of us, I'm, I'm going to just go forward and say thank you for that. 
Oh, thank, thank you. And thank you for having me here today. This is great talking with you. And I just love getting to listen to all the people you talk to. So glad to be one of them. Hey, kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes and Spotify. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or know of someone in the theater who'd make some seriously good chat, by all means, send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again for listening. And please, stay safe, be careful, not only for yourself, but for those with whom we all share this rock. And as always, happy theatering to all of you. <laughs>